Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with James Hawkins, CEO and co-founder of PostHog, an open source product analytics platform that's raised more than $27 million in funding. James, thanks for chatting with me today. It's a pleasure, Brad. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building at PostHog, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. So yeah, I'm James. I'm the CEO and one of two co-founders of PostHog. Uh, my background is when I was 15, I thought I'd be an investment banker got into college. When I was there, I realized economics wasn't for me. Tried to be a professional cyclist. So I used to kind of road race around Europe. I fell off a lot. I had loads of crashes. I used to do kind of web development on the side to make some extra cash. And then I just got like a full-time offer, became a developer, worked at a bunch of startups. In my most recent one where I was, I was an exec, I wound up as the VP of sales somehow. And that's where I met Tim, my co-founder. And when he left, I wanted to work with him. So yeah, within about two minutes of hearing the news that he was departing, he was the best developer I'd ever met. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hey, I really want to keep working with him. And I think we can do something cool together. And that was that. Nice. And what's the longest distance you've ever gone on a bike? 206 miles in one day. Uh, which <laughs> far enough to feel it. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, it was like we did the first it was just very boring. It was a very, very long day. We did a big figure of eight shapes. So uh, the hardest bike ride I've done is 135 miles through the Alps. But yeah, I've done an awful lot of cycling in my life. Nice. I do a lot of running and uh, I've done a few marathons. And the hardest part for me is just it gets boring. You know, you're just kind of running. You run out of things to think about, run out of things to listen to. And then it's just silence and boredom. Is that the same in cycling? Sugar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> no, it's not too bad. I mean, it's very cathartic for the first couple of hours, and then it becomes a bit of a slog. So I don't know. I always liked, I did like the training. It's kind of relaxing in a perverse way, I guess. Nice. Do you follow Rich Roll at all? No, I do not. Uh, I'll have a look. I'll look him up afterwards. Yeah, check him out. He does like these gnarly Ultramans. I think it was he did five Ironmans in five days. Uh, he's a pretty interesting guy. So could be worth checking out. Cool. Yeah, I'll have a look at that one. Nice. Cool. So let's talk about books. We always like to start here and you just learn more about what makes you tick as an entrepreneur and founder. So could you share with us a book that's had the greatest impact on you? Sure. I was going to give you three examples. The first is a bit of a stereotype, but no rules rules had a huge impact on how we run the company. I guess for me, that book made it click that as we scale PaceDog, we're going to do that through more autonomy rather than more process. So it's had a massive cultural impact on how we work. Yeah, the second, I guess, is a biography of Alexander the Great, uh, who did loads of horrific stuff. But just the sheer number of things that he achieved in such a short space of time is really unbelievable. And it puts into perspective, like it's one thing, <laughs> doing B2B SaaS is another thing, conquering uh, multiple <laughs> nations um, in a few years. So that one was just kind of interesting from a like, hey, in the grand scheme of things, um, we could be going faster than this. Yeah, the third one, I mentioned, we're doing an awful lot from just looking at other companies and becoming friends with people that run them and try and learn a little bit more from first principles. Nice. How long is that Alexander the Great book? I'm always interested in reading those, but they tend to be so long. 
not too bad, like 250, 300 pages. I struggle a bit with really long books or books with complicated names. But this one was great. It was so impressive that it was very easy to get through the whole thing. Uh, I can't remember the author of this particular biography, but I thoroughly recommend looking him up under the auspice of kind of pretending that it's work. <laughs> nice. We'll check it out. And now let's talk about Posthog. So what problem do you solve and how do you solve it? Sure. So Postdoc provides an open source product operating system. We try to provide as many of the tools as we can in one spot that help teams make a more successful product. Today, that means product analytics, session recording, feature flagging, experimentation, data pipelines to customer and a data warehouse. The problem we solve is teams today, You all of the products I've just mentioned come from separate vendors. They all have to be integrated with each other. That means you're sending data to tons of companies from a privacy perspective. It means you have loads of data integration work. You'll have issues with data parity. And it means that they're not very intuitive to use. Like it's not easy to kind of hop, not very easy to explore your data because you have to hop between multiple tools. And our goal is just to bring all of that into one platform. And it's kind of all built on an open source base. Got it. And then who's the target market? Sure. We target developers who work at companies with product market fit, who have a centralized data team. So pretty much any software company that's kind of series B or later. Got it. And what about market categories? How do you think about market categories? The play that we have is we're going really, really wide and we're consolidating a bunch of tools. So quite simply, we can see a category for product analytics, one for session recording, one for feature plugging experimentation, and so on. There are many more. And the other thing that we see happening in the kind of analytics world is the modern data stack has kind of become a thing where it's kind of becoming the norm to set up a data warehouse to put all of this work in, to build data pipelines, to connect all your stack, to shove all your data into a single centralized place, and then to kind of use that to power your applications. We think the concept makes total sense, but we think the execution of the market is weak. Mm -hmm. uh, it means buying like eight products and managing up. So we think the market is really, really, really siloed. We can come in as a late entrant and put everything into a single place and make it kind of world editable by being open source to go wider and even faster. Got it. Very cool. And let's zoom in a bit on you know, the fact that you're open source. You know, I think there's a lot of pros and there's probably some cons there to building an open source company. So what you know, led to the decision to do an open source company in the first place? Sure. So originally, we thought it was a feature. So Tim and I, we pivoted five or six times before we built Postdoc. And every single time we pivoted, we had to set up a stack of tools to understand our user behavior. Because you need to know when you're building a startup, how many users do I have? And every single time it annoyed us setting up all these third-party products where we had to send all our user data to someone else. We had to deal with sales teams. We couldn't just get on with it. We had to like talk to human beings. And all we wanted to do was put our credit card details in, get transparent pricing, and get up and running. So we wanted it to be really self-serve. And the second thing is we didn't want to send our data to a third party. We wanted to keep control of it ourselves and to get access to it so we could debug more easily. It's better from a privacy perspective. We didn't want to lose half our data to ad blockers because we were building developer-focused tools. And so originally, we we're like, oh, well, obviously, it's going to be like open source so that you can self-host it so you've got like online data access. And then within about three days, we realized, oh, hang on, like open source is an absolutely core part of our strategy. And um, now open source enables us to build something that's more bottom-up than anyone else um, because you don't need budget. You don't need info security to get up and running with Postdoc. You know, it's totally free. We're MIT licensed, which means you can normally use it without any kind of legal review, which is something that none of our competition can do. The second thing from, is that we're building a really large community. So we have just under 50,000 developers who are using the product, contributing code, you know, raising issues, giving us feedback. We have thousands of people in our Slack group. 
something like 290 people have written code for Postdoc. And it's allowing us to build this huge community and kind of become a standard in the developer world. It's just more appealing to developer, basically. And part three, it's more extensible. Uh, you can modify it, you can connect it to whatever internal stack that you already have. So there are a bunch of awesome advantages of being open source. Got it. And then is it 100% product-led or do you have a sales team and you're following a hybrid approach? What does that look like? 100% inbound, 100% product-led. We have two people that do customer success and that's mm-hmm. basically our sales team. But they, we haven't sent a single cold call or cold email since we started the company, apart from like the first month before we launched and I had to get my friends to start using it. <laughs> it's really a nice way of growing. The advantage is that it's extremely capital efficient to grow like this because we're not investing. Like, I don't want to invest my capital in cold calling 999 people to get, you know, one to buy from us. I want to spend as much as I can on improving our product. And so we've really doubled down on that. We've realized that 97% of our ideal customers come from word of mouth. And so that's our complete focus. Like, how do we do more word of mouth growth? The mm-hmm. downside is that it's much more challenging to figure out how to accelerate like it's way harder to ramp a hundred times in terms of the rate of growth that we get because like we can't just hire 20 times salesperson at you know seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar quota expect 70 percent quota attainment and off we go you can't force people to tell people about how great your product is so you have these like big levers that are really really leveraged but they're kind of in the fog where they're hard to see and it's hard to know what to pull uh, to get faster in the early days and so it took us a little bit of time to figure that out got it that makes sense. And how do you go about you know, marketing and selling to that open source community? Um, that's one of the things that I've read quite a bit about is you know, they say it's always very hard to do. You know, these communities are allergic to marketing. Uh, they'll reject anything that sounds like marketing. So how do you, you know, balance that fact that you have this open source community, but you also you know, need to have a product where you make money? Brand, I think, is the answer. And that's hard to do. I think you're absolutely correct that Anything that has like a veil of marketing or salesiness over the top just creates suspicion in an engineer's mind. And there's an old saying in marketing of features tell, benefits sell. I think in the developer world, that's absolutely incorrect. People want you to just say what the software does and they want to draw their own conclusions. And I think people are so used to marketing language. It's just, it starts kind of triggering people that they're being lied to or you know, it's frustrating that you can't just hear what it does sometimes. So. Going back to like, just, this is what it does. Um, this is how you can use it and keeping it really direct and really authentic has been really important. So from a marketing perspective, we treat our marketing team like the media room for Postdoc. So we're just trying to articulate what Postdoc does really, really well and really clearly. We would never ever do anything like put a paywall in front of content, but sort of put up like an email gate in front of content, for example, like we'll just give everything. Um, we write an awful lot about what we're working on. Um, we work in public. So we have a public handbook. So anyone in the world can see not just our product and our code, but they can see all of our policies and how we work. So you can see how much we pay people, when we choose to fire someone. Um, really anything is there and anyone in the world can suggest an edit. Our newsletter is based on what the company's actually doing rather than the latest webinar that no one wants to listen to. <laughs> so there's this kind of level of like human touch and authenticity underneath and making sure that the majority of people are postdoc. Mm-hmm. are really to the code. We have um, one of our values is everybody code. So we really, really encourage to either hire developers into roles that aren't traditionally filled with developers. And if people aren't technical, we'll encourage them heavily to make at least small contributions to like the website, for example. But yeah, keeping it real. 
<laughs> and are there any open source companies that have really inspired your approach to how you're building Postdoc? A bunch. I don't think we're exactly similar to any of them, but we have borrowed concepts from a lot. So Git, there are two ways. GitLab is a good example. They've given us inspiration on two axes. The first is how to work remotely really effectively. They write everything down. And so do we. So we look to look at their public handbook. I think culturally, we're extremely different. They're much more process-oriented with much more autonomy base, largely coming from the book around Netflix. But they're kind of written, transparent. A communication style is something that we've adopted by following them. I would say that's the main one in open source, actually, that's given us at least some inspiration, but we've coupled it with stuff that we've seen from really well-run other kind of SaaS providers. Got it. And is that model called open core? Yeah, so open core means you have an open source product that's totally free for anyone in the world to use. And then you have a paid version where basically if I'm a user at a really huge bank or a massive organization, I can pay a couple of dollars a month extra or maybe thousands or tens of thousands extra to be able to use premium features. So you just charge like a licensing fee or whatever, even though they're self-hosting the product, they've just like unlocked extra stuff. We have open core Mm -hmm. and cloud. So if you're a postdoc customer, it might be because you're paying us for extra features and you're just deploying postdoc in your stack on your side of the firewall, which is great from a privacy kind of perspective. If you're trying to comply with GDPR, or if you're a developer who just doesn't want to have to argue with your internal legal team, everyone says everything's moving to cloud. The reality is, like, yes, everything is moving to cloud, but large companies don't necessarily want to start there. <laughs> like, we found a lot of companies will start open source, they're not move to cloud. Like, we have paid cloud products as well, where we'll just host it for you if you don't want any hassle of managing it. But they'll start open source, they migrate into cloud later once we've already kind of built a business case with them internally and so on. So yeah, we have this like open core model, but we also have a cloud offering too. Okay, got it. Yeah, I feel like I've been seeing more and more companies use the open core terminology, but I was never sure what that actually meant. Yeah, no, it's kind of, uh, yeah, I think that probably, I think maybe HashiCore also popularized it. But the downside of open core is you have to build an awful lot of stuff. Like you have this like mega efficient go to market because you don't really have to do outbound sales if you do a good job. But you have to build two products. You have to have a free product and extra pay features on top. Uh, so you're covering an awful, the kind of money that you would have used for a sales team kind of goes into like just building more stuff. And it's really hard to pull that off without an awful lot of investment percentage wise in kind of you know, engineering, product design and so on. Got it. Makes sense. All right, so let's talk about traction. So I know you mentioned how big the community is. Are there any numbers that you can share about customer growth? Yeah, so we have about 17,000 customers across all our products, like a lot of free users. Uh, we spent the first year and a half. Uh, we're not very old either. I'd stress we're like two and a half, just over two and a half years old since we started writing the code. We have a bunch. We started doing revenue last year. So we spent like a year and a half kind of doing that open source project, just making sure we've got product market. I mean, if you can't get product market fit on the open source project, there's no point. <laughs> so we thought, okay, we'll get that right. Last summer, we got a lot of demand for you know, an open core version with paid features. We got demand for our cloud version where people wanted us to host it for them instead and we were willing to pay for that. Mm-hmm. We started doing paid revenue there. We're currently trying to get to 10 million run rate. We've averaged something like 17% month-over-month revenue growth for the last year. So yeah, both sides have been going really, really well. Our current focus is kind of optimization. I think we've got product market fit around the paid products, around the free product. But now we're trying to improve our conversion. We're getting like record signups every week and stuff. But we're trying to make sure that we get kind of 
really effective monetizing the massive volume of people showing up. I think we're actually adding more companies every week than any of our competitors, and, that, and all of them are multi-billion dollar companies. And I think within another year or so, we'll have a higher overall volume of customers than any of them, in, uh, comparing us at least to like product analytics, session recording, feature planning, experimentation, those kind of categories. So we've got an awful lot of momentum at the moment, but we're trying to be good citizens, trying to stay, like we're keeping ourselves default alive. We didn't do like a nuts fundraising round last year when the market was really hot. We've kind of just doubled down on making sure our revenue side is solid first. Was it tempting last year to take some, you know, FU money from Tiger Global? Were you tempted at all? <laughs> yeah, I feel like we had to put a lot of invested minds. Basically, three things happened at once. My daughter got really ill. And so I had to look after her. And I was like, okay, we've also got a lot of paid demand and there's a ton of investor demand. So we can basically choose hype or actual performance. And we went for actual performance. And now I'm extremely glad we did. It's a hell of a lot easier to figure out how to get stuff working when you don't have to have like 200 people around. So the business side has been really fun for the last year, like actually getting... Because when you launch, it's all hype. Like you're just trying to get any, you know, seed stage money you can or whatever. We got lucky and did a series A and a series B in very quick succession. Kind of both, I think, just about within the first year. Uh, series B we announced a little bit later than we raised it. And it's been a lot. It's been really nice to actually then get the online business to work properly. So we've kind of shifted from like a lot of potential to kind of mm-hmm. actual performance. But, you know, we've got a long way to go still. We're still very young. Nice. And let's talk about you know some of your greatest challenges. So as I'm sure you know, you know, taking an innovative idea to market isn't easy. So what would you say was your greatest challenge that you had to overcome as you brought this idea to market? So far from challenges in personal life with my daughter being ill, I think the second, in terms of work, we the biggest one we actually had with open source that's kind of unique is there are too many people to talk to. <laughs> so it's really hard. You get adopted everywhere when you do open source. Like we literally have a chain of pizza stores using us in ukraine and on the other hand we have like fortune 500 companies using us and like barber stores and like everything in between so we have this massively wide kind of adoption of the open source free product so i think we lost about six months from not focusing hard enough we came up with this concept of uh, like ali Ragani, who's on our board who's excellent really pushed us on figuring out our ideal customer profile which I always thought was like, okay, this is kind of like bureaucratic. It's like just a few words on a page. Like we're building for developers. This seems easy. But it was transformative for us as a company. We, as we released our paid product, we went, okay, hold, like even though we have thousands of like, companies using this thing, we just want to get five to pay us like full pricing. They need to be delighted at the product and really using it thoroughly in the way that we intended. And so we just focused the whole company on like nailing those five. And then in that process, we looked at like, okay, could we sell to really easily? Who was really successful really fast? And then we started spotting, okay, there's like eight or nine things they all have in common with each other. And then that led us just focus and focus and focus. Like we realized, okay, it's developers who are making the decision, not product managers, for example. We can go more technical. We can be more developer-oriented in the way we do kind of branding, go-to-market and sales. We're not going to worry about listening to the feedback as much from product managers as the initial engineer who sets up the product, for example. So... It's been invaluable to figure out, to really focus the company on getting the ideal customer profile right before hiring like dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And was it scary when you finally you know, narrowed that ICP down and said, okay, this is what we're going to focus on? You know, That's been my experience whenever I've done these exercises is like you go through it and then the end you have to make 
a really hard decision, which you know kind of feels like you're potentially turning down business, turning down opportunity. Did you have to deal with that too? Yeah. So we kind of added to this profile over time. And to give you a good example, like we've had customers who are enter- part of our profile now is mid-market companies and non-enterprise, which we kind of define as basically people that don't put us through an RFP or an extensive procurement process. And so we've been turning down like really large enterprise contracts because we have a belief that if we nail mid-market and we really, really, really get this right and we just completely dominate there, enterprises will end up coming to us and we'll be playing kind of from a strong foot rather than not really meeting all their requirements, needing like much more complicated permissioning, having to have another like order of magnitude, more scalability and so on. So yeah, we have made some short-term painful decisions that would have made us look good, but the reality is it means we have a much healthier product and we're able to bring product focused. It's been really important to maintain a long runway and to have had a lot of finance to be able to pull off those kinds of decisions. So I think it's partly why we raised a lot of money out of the gate is so that we had the room to make tough calls like that that were harmful financially in the short run that we thought would benefit us financially in the long run. Nice. And that must have been hard too, right? Because I feel like at least you know the companies that I work with and what I've seen is companies always have a lot of pressure to go enterprise and focus on enterprise. You know, enterprise is where the money's at. It's sexy and yeah, they want the big logos. So was that hard to say, no, we're going to do mid-market? And was there pushback, you know, internally? Were there investors that were pushing you to go more enterprise? What was that like? Yeah, it was really interesting. Funnily enough, the investor pressure was the other way around. I think it is a potential failure mode of a lot of companies where they're like, holy crap, we can't make enough money. We should sell bigger deals. Like that'll just make up for everything. And I've worked in places where that's happened before. Like, whereas the head of sales, I pushed us up market because I was like, okay, I need to sell 200 deals this year. We're selling like one a month. <laughs> that doesn't add up. Uh, I have, I will make a, I made our pricing like 20 or 40 times more expensive. It did work. Like we got really quickly from like a million to the 10 to 20 million kind of run rate by selling a handful of extremely big deals. Like, like average was around a million dollars a year kind of thing. But the downside was a greater scale it was impossible to keep the product together, to keep our best engineers in and to get to like 100 million in revenue. So we, I don't want to repeat that mistake. I'd rather kind of do my own work before the exam, uh, kind of in the mid-market and build kind of mass popularity there first and have a kind of inbound motion that's not sales-led and so on. So yeah, like our um, board were, if anything, pushing us in that direction, saying like great businesses are built in mid-market and go up market later. And it'll be incredibly obvious when you should go up market. You'll have an overwhelming amount of demand. So just ignore it for now. And that's ongoingly hard to do because it's tempting all the time. I've also got like a bunch of us that worked together before and we've all got a background selling enterprise software. So we've kind of got the skills and experience to do it. But I think we all know that the current approach we have is working really, really well. And mm-hmm. we should kind of ruthlessly scale this until <laughs> we're like completely dominant and then start moving around in the market. Nice. That makes sense. And what would you say excites you most about the the day-to-day work that you get to do? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Like I I wrote a blog post this last week. I was like, man, we've got really far and I don't really know what motivates me. I think I'm quite a competitive person. And I was like, okay, I really want to beat like all these companies. And I had a list of them. You know, if you're at like seed stage, you're like, okay, I want to do well in the we did white combination. And I was like, okay, I want to do really well. And, like in the batch. Like I want to try and like get make more progress than anyone each week or whatever. And then when we came out, it's like, okay, now we're looking at like Series B companies, now we're looking at Series C companies and so on. I think the thing that actually motivates me though is all of that competition, they stand for an awful lot of things we think are wrong. Uh, like they don't have transparent pricing. They're top down. They don't, like they're not kind of obsessed with basically just the end user and the person that initially adopts. 
they're really enterprisey, they're bland, they're kind of boring in terms of their branding. And I just really want to kind of prove that like you can actually do this stuff right. Like, you can build a cool company, you can just be yourselves, and you can make that work. And you can beat these other people by building for like those end users. Like I think the best way of doing enterprise sales is to have 200 people internally telling their own organization they want to buy this product. And that's kind of the approach that we're aiming for. Mm-hmm. And it's really motivating doing that kind of open source along the way. Because it means for every customer we sell, maybe like 90 other, yeah, maybe like every 10 customers we get, 90 or whatever, we'll just use the open source product. It means an awful, awfully large number of like hobbyists, like everyday people working on side projects or whatever, will get a load of value too. And it's fun treating the working in the open so other people can learn from us. Our mission is to increase the number of successful products in the world. And so we're just kind of writing, like our marketing is basically to write up everything we're learning along the way. It's getting bigger and bigger which just helps other people out. So it's a really nice and a self-fulfilling cycle where we can genuinely help people out. And the more we give away for free, the more money we make. So really cool cycle. And I would love to be kind of closed source competition who only care about like 500 biggest companies in the world or whatever. Nice. I love it. And if we zoom out into the future, what would you say is the five-year vision for Posthog? I wonder if we can do this in five years. <laughs> Basically, we're like, okay, can we get to 100 million in revenue by 2026 to get, which we think is enough roughly to do an IPO. After that, we and we're on track to do that at the moment, although we're early. But five years out or more, I think we're going to end up competing directly with data warehouses. So although people think we're competitive with the apps we provide, like product analytics, they think we're competitive with Amplitude, session recording, they think we're competitive with Full Story. And to a certain extent, we are. But in the really long run, the thing we want to do is be like the place where people store all of their data. But the difference is we're not just a piece of data infrastructure. We have all these apps you can use and you just switch them on or off. It means there's no data engineering needed at all. And it ultimately means that everyone in the organization can easily take advantage of the data of their, that their users are building up. So I would be just as competitive with something like Snowflake in the kind of long, long run. And uh, yeah, the thing that's different is we're a warehouse, but with all of the products you could possibly need integrated and a whole load of them should be built by the community, not just by us directly. Nice. That's amazing. Well, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Search for Postdog Newsletter. And we post every two weeks or so, basically the most interesting stuff we've learned. Nice. We'll check that out. Thanks a lot, James. Really appreciate it. And wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. Thanks, Brett. Always a pleasure. All right. Keep in touch. 